Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Hello, and welcome back to the Neo-Jurassic Podcast. It's been quite a while, hasn't it? Uh, For those of y'all tuning in for the first time or returning after a year or two, my name is Bri, and I am so very grateful to have you. A few years ago, I began this podcast with the intention of exploring the speculative real-world possibilities proposed by the Jurassic Park franchise, a world in which massive corporations have released transgenic, de-extincted, mesozoic megafauna and flora into the world's ecological and economic systems. I am very excited to interrupt this podcast's long hiatus with a very, very special guest. Dr. Beth Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is a professor of ecology and evolutionary paleobiology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, as well as the director of evolutionary genomics at the USSC Genomics Institute. She is perhaps best known as the author of 2015's How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction which I would say is probably the best and certainly the most popular book on the subject. Dr. Shapiro uses DNA recovered from bones, fossils, and other remains to study how species and ecosystems have evolved and the impact human involvement has had and continues to have on them. Way back in late 2021, Dr. Shapiro generously donated her time to chat to me about her excellent new book, Life As We Made It, how 50,000 years of human innovation refined and redefined nature. For anyone interested in de-extinction, synthetic biology, CRISPR conservation, transgenic organisms, and mankind's fascinating influence on the Earth's biosphere, this book is an absolute banger of an essential read. So please, I strongly suggest you check it out, as this conversation just barely scratches the surface of Dr. Shapiro's remarkable work on the edge of so many scientific frontiers. I am so thrilled to finally share this conversation with y'all. So let's just go ahead and get it started. Has anyone arrived at a better term for de-extinction yet? Or is de-extinction just kind of like the, the de-extinction? I think we're stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. that kind of seems what's happening, right? Yeah. I mean, as people think about the nuances associated with it, they might use genetic rescue in some cases. Right. But right. de-extinction, people know what that means. That means, you know, bringing something back that is gone. Is my audio okay, by the way? You sound so, perfect. Absolutely okay. perfect. First of all, I cannot wait to read this book. I, I mean, this is just sort of the world of things that I'm utterly fascinated by. Um, and this life as we made it in particular is has that sort of idea of of the blurred line between 
what is considered human and therefore unnatural and what is considered natural and therefore good and, and you know, Terran based or whatever you want to call it, um, is just such a fascinating conversation to be having in this time of like profound existential anxiety. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm curious, what motivated you to follow up How to Clone a Mammoth with Life as We Made It? It's a good question. I I don't really know because after I finished writing life uh, after I finished writing the mammoth book, um, I was convinced I was never going to do that again. Uh-huh. <laughs> no more writing books because it just it's great until there's a deadline, and you know uh-huh. how deadlines are. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that I was actually going to do this, and now I have to really sit down and do it. And who has time to do this on top of everything else? But um, I think. You know, a lot of the conversations that I had after the Mammoth book were really prompting me to think about what good this sort of technology could do. I mean, there's a lot of gut reaction negativity or positivity about bringing extinct species back to life. And I think both of those are probably wrong or misguided or or not sufficiently nuanced. And, and really, all of the power of this technology is probably for trying to protect species that are still alive today, that are in danger of becoming extinct. But the only way to get people really excited about that is to you know, think about mammoths and dinosaurs and something that's really spectacular, something that's grand and moonshot-ish, right? Because mm-hmm. that's just more exciting than thinking about bringing stuff back. But it's not more logical. It's not a better use of the technology. And then I was thinking, well, how do, how do you convince people that it's okay to use mm. this sort of technology to protect and preserve species and communities and ecosystems that are alive today when we have such pushback against using these technologies for food, Right. Um, and and why do we have such pushback? And that just got me to thinking about how we could really present the story in such a way to try to peel back some of those layers, to try to better understand why people are scared of the technology, why there's this knee jerk yuck reaction to these technologies, because I really do think that these technologies are something we're going to have to embrace if we want to have a future where there is a lot of biodiversity and a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have to be able to do this in a way that involves stakeholder and community buy-in and equitability. And that starts with a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the, the intention of this podcast in many ways is to also, it, it's sort of at the same evangelical angle of, of trying to dissolve this paranoid uh, fear of these technologies and sort of to, to uh, illuminate the fact that we have been working in, in, in symbiosis with the world, shifting and changing everything since we arrived, basically. Um, and it's essential for our survival moving forward, it feels, and for the greater biodiversity and everything else that's, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. But, you know, I I also want to give people permission to be worried about stuff they don't understand. I think that is a very healthy human response to stuff. And one of the biggest problems we have is that the misinformation, disinformation, loud, small number of people who are out there telling us that we should be scared because this is the end of the world, they're very loud and we need to be just as loud with real information and try to make it as enticing and illuminating. People are smart. They can make good choices. They just have to be given the right information to use to make those choices. Right. And boy, and, it, has it ever been proven that that is a very challenging <laughs> yeah. uh, thing to accomplish these days. 
Yeah. I mean, when misinformation becomes tied up with somebody's identity, it's really hard to disentangle that, but you got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Well, so speaking of that, the, the the words and works of Donna Haraway and Timothy Morton have had a tremendous impact on my own relationship with the world and the many ways I think about it and interact with it, particularly lately given, you know, the accelerating state of chaos and terror that I seem to be experiencing, at least personally. Um, how have you approached the conversation surrounding the progression from uh, the Holocene to these newly proposed terms, such as the Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Plantationocene, Cthulhocene, like all those things? How, what, where do you stand in that conversation personally? Yeah, that's interesting. This was a question I was asked last week in, a, in an interview. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like the, the these words all have meanings that are important in whatever conversation you're having at the time. And if we're having a conversation about the shift in the way that people have been manipulating life on earth, the question of when that shift happened, I think to, to me, you know, we can go back really far, right, in time yeah. and we can say people started definitely manipulating the evolution of things around us when we started spreading and driving things to extinction. Mm -hmm. But that, that first way that we interacted with people, with, with other species, you know, we arrive in a naive landscape and all of a sudden the, we overhunt the megafauna, we change the landscape and things start going extinct. There wasn't really intent in that, you know, that, that was the way that we were as a species. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't look at something and say, you know what, I want the giant sloths to go extinct, or I want the giant short-faced bears to go extinct. Well, maybe we did because they were yeah. kind of scary, but you know what I mean. Like this, yeah. <laughs> this was, there wasn't really deliberate intention in the way that we were shifting the landscape at the time, but that changed, right? That changed as soon as people realized that um, it was easier if the things that they liked to eat weren't extinct, if the populations were sustained. People began to manipulate hunting strategies, do things like take only non-reproductive females or take only males and leave the reproductive females. They were learning strategies for interacting with the species that they were relying on just by shifting the way that they were hunting. And that was really the, the beginning of intent, right? Mm. And then with that, they then started moving animals closer to where they were living and began herders rather than hunters. And then they really started manipulating things. This animal spooks or runs away. That one, we can either let escape or we'll kill that one and eat that one. The ones that will stay around and be nice to us and follow our instructions rather than whoever the dominant member of that herd is. This is how we started to tame things. And, and I think that is where we start to see the real shift into human dominance. And of course, as more resources are available to us, our populations can grow and we'll begin to see increasing impact of humans on the, the planet more broadly. So maybe that, in my mind, is the beginning of this idea of the Anthropocene. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I'm curious. I, I, I asked last week as well, this person who's interviewing me. <sighs> I, 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 again, I really don't know. First of all, I don't have anywhere near the education appropriate to, 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 to really have that much of an informed opinion on. All oh, come things. on. Have you been on Twitter? That doesn't stop anyone from having opinions. <laughs> it stops me. It stops me a lot, actually, to be honest with you. Um, quite often I'm stopped. Um, and that's kind of where I am, but I, 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 I am fascinated by the conversation. I love engaging with it. I love exploring it. And I think it's such an important and fascinating conversation to have at this point in time. Um, 
yeah, it's really hard to say. But on a related note, and this is this sort of links up to that conversation. You know, since the dawn of civilization, uh, and this is uh, something I've I've read recently in a paper, approximately eighty three percent of wild mammals have gone extinct. Today, livestock makes up 60% of all biomass on Earth, followed by humans at 36%, leaving the remaining 4% to wild mammal populations. Uh, it seems that these, uh, well, okay. It seems that genes associated with domestication, compliance, and neotenized physical features have aggressively dominated this Earth. Um, so my question is, does your book at all dabble into the hominid self-domestication theory idea and 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 does it look at at how those particular features have just totally dominated the planet no one really i there's not much conversation about that and i'm curious um where you stand on that yeah no i i don't really go into the self-domestication i talk about it a little bit i have a, a chapter early on where i'm I'm interested in you know, human evolution more broadly, and but I'm focusing more on interactions with archaic hominins and how we can use genetics to try to identify what it means to be human, what differentiates us right. from our archaic cousins. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the self-domestication hypothesis, but this again is this is going to be somewhere where I say I don't I don't know enough about this. I haven't totally. done enough research to have any. Like good comment there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want to. I wouldn't want to wade into something that I'm definitely not an expert in under the auspices that I am an expert. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, do you think about that? I mean, it's just it's utterly fascinating to me because we're talking about how mankind has so aggressively changed the landscape, and, and you know, like you know, plastics and man-made materials vastly outweigh biomass at this point. But no one really talks about the fact that like all of these 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 features have all symbiotically these 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 traits have all risen in great quantity and 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 uh spread and it, it's it's well, I just don't see you know what I do problem. talk about and it, it's a slightly different line and I think it's important and and relevant here and that is that you know when we think about evolution i think we need to start thinking of people as an evolutionary force yes. right um before people there was just you know genetic drift and natural selection you know random chance and natural selection these are our evolutionary forces mutation migration stuff like that but now we have people and we often think of evolution as a progression from something simple to something complex like we're going towards some mm. this is the way that we imagine or, or when before you learn about evolution you imagine that evolution is this progression and you imagine that there's something better we're always moving towards something better but that's not at all the way evolution works right evolution just favors whatever organisms whatever individuals in their generation are better fit to survive and reproduce in the time in which they are alive right yeah. and if we think of humans as a massive evolutionary force the things that are surviving and dominating today are just the things that are more fit that are better adapted to surviving in a land that is dominated by people and sometimes it's organisms that have evolved traits that make it easy for us to manipulate them that we just like better right yeah. and other times it's just things that have evolved the capacity to tolerate us right yeah. but we are a pretty dominant evolutionary force and i don't think we should be, if, if if humans are making up the vast landscape of things and cows, right, then yeah. whatever it is, microbes or plants or other things that have evolved to be able to thrive in that environment where those are the other dominant things are going to do well. And that is just the simple fact of how evolution works. 
Yeah, absolutely. So as these profound advances in, in genetic engineering open up all sorts of avenues for further exploitation, I am personally extremely interested in the continued, uh, the, the next adventure in the commodification and bio-objectification of animals. In particular, so, you know, this this podcast is largely influenced by the the, the Jurassic Park novels and series and all that sort of stuff. Um, in the Jurassic Park novel, docile approximations of smaller dinosaur species suitable for companion animal status were proposed as another avenue for the de-extinction industry. Uh, similar to the lysine contingency, um, which they, if you may or may not recall, these animals were engineered to be entirely dependent on a uh, on lysine to uh, to you know metabolize. Um, so outside of that island environment, they would totally perish. forgot about that lysine yeah. thing. Yeah. That's funny. Yep. Yeah. So these animals were engineered to be entirely these pets basically were proposed to be entirely dependent upon a proprietary food source formulated specifically by these critters uh, corporate creator. So in your research for this book, what have you learned about the way that biotechnology is is reaching towards the pet industry? So far, the most notable examples of biotech have been, you know, uh, fluorescence and bioluminescence and, you know, fish and rabbits and stuff like that. Um, but how do you, how do you see that? Of, how do you see the pet industry evolving alongside genomic engineering, if at all? I mean, that's funny. It's interesting. I, I talk about glowfish in the book. Um, I think, you know, we've been manipulating our pets way more than, than anything else. Right. Oh, God, like, yeah. and if you think about the, and a lot of it has happened just in the last couple hundred years all the mm -hmm. breeds of cattle and horses and dogs that we know there these are you know since victorian times kind of things right um, but we started domesticating these animals way longer ago than that i think we'll see some of the ways that we're seeing already for example are we know in some breeds of dogs what genetic mutations are associated with defects right we can use DNA sequencing, sort of genomics, to try to target mutations that we know are associated with bad things in different mm. pet breeds. And then we can test animals before we register them. You know, mm. we can in this way, I know that since genomic testing has become available, there are several traits that have been almost entirely removed from the registered populations, registered um, dogs in oh. both the UK and in the US, because we can say, oh, you know, this is a bad, this is a bad trait. But it is true that we can use sort of targeted DNA sequencing, if we have figured out what, what genetic mutation causes a particular disease phenotype, then we can test animals to see if they have those genetic mutations, and we can use that to make sure that those individuals don't breed or that, you know, so puppies who have these mutations don't breed so they don't get, they, they, these mutations can be, dis, can be made to disappear from the from the breeds. So that doesn't use gene editing. That's just gene genomics, yeah. gene testing. Um, we can introduce once you have, so here's, this isn't a, a pet example, but um, there's a, a professor in at UC Davis called um, Alison Beniniman, and she is working with Holstein. Holstein mostly grow horns and they have to be dehorned, which oh, yeah. is a painful and expensive process. Um, but in Angus and other cattle breeds, a mutation happened at some point in evolutionary history that caused them not to grow horns. So they've discovered which mutation it is that causes them not to grow horns. And they took Holstein uh, embryos and they used gene editing to add that allele from 
Angus into mm. Holstein. And the result were a couple of Holstein bulls that did not grow horns, naturally didn't grow horns. Now, this is a biotechnological solution mm -hmm. that provides the same phenotype as you would get if you bred an Angus beef cattle with a Holstein dairy cow, right? Mm -hmm. Except you would get 50% of the DNA that would be optimized for beef production and 50% of, of the DNA that would be optimized for milk production and undoing generations of selective breeding for these two elite types of cattle. And using, so, and but you'd still get this phenotype. You get a hornless individual and then over the course of many more generations, you could breed the milk production back into that particular individual, right? Yeah. Or you could use gene editing and do it in one generation and not lose any of the optimization that you had, right? And and she thought this would be great because, you know, we don't really have to worry about people freaking out that they're eating this allele because <laughs> in their milk cattle, because they've been eating it in beef cattle forever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she assumed that this would be an easy thing to do. But the, the USDA and the FDA have decided to regulate gene-edited products differently. The USDA, which has authority over plants, they've decided that if you create a phenotype using gene editing that could have been created in nature using normal breeding, mm. that they're not going to regulate this. There's no DNA introduced from other species. It's something that could have happened with breeding, except that was just kind of pushed along in that direction a little bit using technology. It doesn't matter. It's no different from something that would have occurred naturally. They're not going to regulate it. Whereas the FDA decided that they're going to regulate anything that was developed using gene editing technologies as drugs, new animal drugs. Huh. And so in order for these milk cows to be put into the food chain, they would have to pass all of the same hurdles that a new coronavirus vaccine would have to pass through, which of course a single lab at a public institution can't afford to do. No. So. So instead of having this really simple solution to what is an expensive and painful process, this is basically an animal rights question rather than a food question, right? Yeah. <laughs> animal welfare question instead of a food question. Well, that's um, actually like kind, of, like kind of also what I was thinking about welfare and how welfare, I mean, there's also this paranoid distrust of, of technology, but uh, and which, you know, in some cases is not unwarranted. But, you know, welfare is such a question when it regard, when it, in regards to biotechnology and the manipulation of organisms. And then you look at things like pug dogs and French bulldogs and these animals that are just barely clinging to <laughs> <laughs> any resemblance of anything in the natural order. Um uh, and, you know, of course, that but is a conversation. they survive well and they reproduce in the world in which they live. They are... Through, I mean, through assisted the, means. Even if that through means very assisted doing. means. Like, like <laughs> C-sections are, necess are a necessity for all French bulldog births. I mean, it, it just doesn't... It, it's not a functional organism at this point. And, you know, there's a myriad of health issues. So uh, it, it is interesting to see how these conversations evolve alongside genomic engineering and its impact on... on other animals, you know. No, I agree. You know, there was a, a few years ago, there was an announcement from BGI in in China that they were going to make micro pigs, yes. little like pig pet pigs that would only grow to an apartment friendly size. We're but all this, waiting that, for them. <laughs> oh, it, no, they, they've they've quietly just scrapped the I know, project. I, know, I, know. I, I think I I read somewhere, and I can't confirm or deny any of this, but I read somewhere that it was because it worked. They they made these micro pigs, but they they didn't manage to stop them from growing. They just slowed them down. Yep. And so while they w did remain small for longer, they eventually grew into normal-sized pigs, right? Yeah, pigs. Yeah, yeah. And so 
not particularly apartment friendly after all. No. You have to stick with your pugs and yeah. your chihuahuas. <laughs> if you were to select any species from the fossil record to be resurrected as a <laughs> pet slash companion animal, what would you choose, do you think? Um... Do you have any pets now, by the way? Sorry. I do. I have a yeah. I have a lab. He's sitting behind me, uh, yeah. looking at me like, what are you doing again? You're not, <laughs> why are you not taking me for a walk right now? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have two cats who hate the lab. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. that's, yeah. Um, and I have two children, which I, is kind of like pets, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> just companion animals for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're much they, they're much harder work than my yeah. than my pets, but yeah. for sure, uh, especially than the cats who just kind of glare at all of us and mm-hmm. kind of aloofly from behind. Um, I think I don't know. I'm going to go with. I, I'm often asked this question, and I always have a different answer. So I'm clearly not stuck on anything in particular. Right. Today, I'm going to go with dodo. Yeah, why? Yeah. Why would you make that choice? Uh, because they're ridiculous looking. They are, they, they don't, they didn't taste good apparently. So there's Mm -hmm. not going to be a mad rush to have them to to (laughs) kill them for their food. Mm -hmm. They, um, didn't really, we weren't scared of people to start with, which is how they ended up extinct. Right. They don't reproduce very quickly. They laid a single egg in a nest on the ground, which is actually why they went extinct. It wasn't because we ate them. It was because we brought rats and cats and pigs and they ate the egg. And if you can't reproduce, then you can't survive. Right. Yeah. Um, And also because it was the very first ancient DNA species I ever worked with. So I have a, you know, sort of uh, emotional relationship totally. with the dodo for that reason. <laughs> um, I, I know there's there's tremendous there are tremendous difficulties in the extinction of avian species, but um, do you ha- is there any hope in your in, hope in your heart for some uh, approximation of the dodo to materialize one day? Oh, so lots of hurdles. Um, a lot of it has to do with gene editing. I mean, one of the hurdles is always a, a whole genome, you know, understanding right. what the differences are between the dodo and its closest living relative. Right. That's not a hurdle for this one. I've actually sequenced a whole genome of a dodo. It's not published yet, but it's out there. It exists. That is it out there soon. incredible, by the way. <laughs> Um, but it is pretty distantly related to its closest living relative, which is the Nicobar pigeon, Mm. which is beautiful flighted Mm -hmm. pigeon, but diverged probably on the order of 15 to 20 million years. Um, now with birds, you know, we we worry with mammals that if you have something that's too far apart from the thing that would act as a surrogate mom, that all of those developmental cues wouldn't necessarily work. That might actually be easier with birds since all that happens in an egg. And I've seen, I know you interviewed Ben Novak, but he had some pictures and talk that he gave once where they had eggs that had, were developing, but they were too big for the species that was there. It didn't matter. They were just using the egg and the top was even open so that people could see the developing embryo in the inside. Oh, wow. So presumably there's some easier steps there. It's just how do we edit birds that were kind of kind of not really not really knowing what to do with yet. But the dodo also has some other good reasons why it might be, you know, might be good. You, you often think about where, what would you do with this species if you brought it back? Is right. it fair to bring something back as a pet? You asked me specifically about as a pet, you know, so yeah, I'm answering exactly. you as a yeah. pet. But the dodo might also actually have some good ecological things that it could do. I mean, Mauritius is an island. You can imagine being able to at least um, 
you know, clean up parts of the island so that the thing that drove it to extinction in the first place wouldn't be so much of a threat. There are islands off the coast of Mauritius, sort of satellite islands on Mauritius, where they've managed to remove invasive species and even reintroduce um, tortoises, because a tortoise is another Mauritian species that went extinct. They introduced yeah. a related tortoise and found that that tortoise was eating the ebony seeds. And actually, the process of passing through the tortoise's body caused the ebony to start to regenerate. And so they removed these invasive species, the ebony trees are coming back. That's and fantastic. so there really, there might be habitat that one might imagine introducing a dodo to. And in this case, I think it would have probably some um, financial benefit to Mauritius as well, which is a, you know, based, the, a lot tourism. of the economy is based on tourism and a lot of yeah. that tourism has to do with the dodo already. Imagine if they had real dodos that they could actually show people. So fantastic. I don't know. Yeah. A little, it's all a little fanciful, obviously. Oh, of course, of course. But a lot of technical. This, and this podcast and, yeah. holds space for the for the fanciful, for sure. <laughs> it's like a major component, naturally. Um, it, so, rewilding is a very exciting idea, and and I, I, I'm optimistic for a lot of rewilding situations. But when we're talking about rewilding something like a passenger pigeon, um, a species that is known for just descending upon forests in untold, unfathomable quantities and just screaming shitting everywhere and then, you know, leaving just a trail of, of black and white carnage everywhere they go with little bits of feathers here and there. I can't imagine that people would be very receptive to that reality all, all along the east coast of North America. Um, you know, yeah, like, so know, like, we don't, we yeah. also don't actually know that that's the reality, right? right I mean, true. some of in the very end of the passenger pigeon, there were smaller populations that were alive, um, in pockets in different places. And they seemed capable of reproducing even in small populations. Oh, interesting. I cool. mean, a lot of that objection, that there have to be 3 billion or none. Right. I, yeah. I, we don't, we don't really know that that's true. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the, one, one question is, you know, part of what they did to an ecosystem was take these, these, you know, rich old growth ecosystems and destroy them and they're, and thereby sort of paving the way for regeneration of new things. And so that was one of their ecosystem services. Could, could that be accomplished if you had fewer than 3 billion? Who knows, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. mean, would they be able to be this destructive force? But I, I think, you know, we, we sequenced the pasture pigeon genome a while ago and we showed that um, that their populations were very large for a very long time, which means that there is potential that natural selection led to the evolution of, of traits or, or the adaptation to such large populations. That would mean that they weren't, they wouldn't necessarily survive as well in smaller populations. But when we looked through the genome for specific genes or mutations or adaptations that would give us that hint. We didn't really see it, you know? Yeah. doesn't mean it wasn't there, but it certainly means that the jury is still out as to whether the populations had to be as large as they were in order for the birds to survive. Yeah. Um, but for, it's, for, the, just, for the, the perceived positive contribution to the ecosystem, uh, that is also unclear, like what the number of birds would have to be for, for, that, for that system to become functional in the way that it once was as well, right? right? Yeah, yeah, we just don't know. We don't know. That's right. Mm. Um, circling back on holding space for the fanciful, uh, naturally, Michael Crichton's works have had a, a massively formative role on shaping my own worldview. And in more recent years, <laughs> authors like Margaret Atwood and Jeff Vandermeer and artists like Patricia Piccinini have simultaneously expanded and greatly refined uh, my own perspective. 
To what degree would you so say you're not own... all dinosaurs eating paleontologists while they're oh, no, in the no, toilet no, no. anymore? Far, good, far, good. far, 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 far. <laughs> um, to what degree would you say your own curiosities and perspectives and impulses have been shaped by science fiction? Oh, it's a great question that no one has asked me before. Um, you know, in the very beginning of working in the field of ancient DNA, I thought that my field came about, my research field came about because of Jurassic Park and things mm -hmm. like that. And I was both disappointed and relieved to discover that it was in the opposite direction, that Michael Crichton actually acknowledges the extinct species study group at UC Berkeley, which was yeah. led by Alan Wilson at the time, for giving him the idea for Jurassic Park, not the other way around. So that is both a relief and yeah. deeply disappointing. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I... Th I uh, I don't know. I, maybe I'm more of a pragmatist. I'm. I. I do think that science fiction is fun, yeah. and that science fiction kind of is pushes at the edge of science reality. Right. And that a lot of people are excited at the possibility that science fiction could become real. Yeah. And that there probably is science that is motivated by science fiction, but more often than not, it probably is going in the other direction. It's, it's people thinking, oh, I heard that these people up at Penn can make this external womb that um, that grows a a, a, a lamb to yeah. to some amount of completeness that they can't it doesn't actually go they can't actually um make a, the whole way, an animal whole mammal yeah. go the whole way um but uh, but that's a cool idea you know how can we push this into some sort of scary realm of how scientists <laughs> are going to destroy the world with this particular innovation um i kind of wish that there was that science fiction wasn't always or often about these terrible, horrible futures that we definitely want to avoid because right, I think right. that does us a bit of a disservice when we're trying to convince the public that there's actually good things that we can do with these technologies. No, absolutely. Gonna... <laughs> I mean, it's, particularly in the United States, there's this uh, cultural um, uh, disdain for intellectualism and progression a lot of the time, I have found. Um, and I can't help but wonder how much of that is rooted in just all this dystopic science fiction that we're constantly inundated with. So we need some utopic science fiction. Maybe you should do that next. You know, when this uh, podcast project is over, just write some really cool, like how science is going to science is going to save the world, the edges uh, of reality. That's or not maybe that my. That would that be more like a therapeutic process for me more than anything else. <laughs> like that would just be for me clinging to my own sanity. Um, I don't really perceive that going well over with the way my mind works, unfortunately. <laughs> um, well, what about you know this? A few weeks ago, now there was this this company that announced Colossal, who's going. Oh, Yes, is to bring a mammoth back to life. And and I think what they're doing is pushing this, you know, science fiction as utopia. This is science fiction because they say we're going to bring a mammoth back to life. And and I, you know, still say that there's no way we're going to get to something that is 100% identical to a species that used to live there. Totally. Um, and utopia, because they're like, these mammoths are going to stop climate warming, which is insanity, insanity. right? Mm -hmm. um, um, but, you know, maybe that wasn't their messaging. Maybe that was, you know, some of the messaging that came through. You never know, right, dealing yeah. with these things. Some of the messaging that I've heard from them that's been super positive has just been, well, think of the cool technology that will be developed as we try to push toward this you know, a little bit crazy goal and how those technologies can be used to protect and preserve species that are alive today. And I 100% agree with that. 
Um, I think this is super cool uh, for biodiversity conservation that there is new money going into this, and that money comes from you know tech entrepreneurs. <laughs> Absolutely, it's rad as hell. And and this also kind of relate. I, I had this conversation with Ben Novak, of course, because you guys are in the unique position of being very well known figures in de-extinction science. And I know as someone who's very much interested in these things, how infuriating it is to just see unbelievable amounts of clickbait um, regarding de-extinction just like pumped out into the internet every fucking day. And like just all of the nonsense that like every five days, there's like a flood of people on Twitter talking about how so-and-so is going to clone dinosaurs in five years. And everyone just does the same tired Jurassic Park jokes over and over and over again. Yeah. It's and, like, not every five days. It's about once a year. Yeah. 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 It feels like every five days to me, but, um, but I can't help but wonder how much, how much that may have impacted your own relationship with science fiction and, and science fiction's role in, you know, science and our the cultural perception of science because it is so, it's so just, I find it annoying. Just frustrating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so annoying. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially because it's the same story. Like we the never really story. move beyond the um, if we could. Right. So what should we? You know, I mean, come yeah. on, let's have a more nuanced discussion about what we what we what we can do and what we should do and how we actually make those decisions. I mean, this is assuming that there's. Uh, there's always some different different bit of it, right? There's always some like evil scientist up on some hill who's making this decision that's going to destroy the world. Or right. <laughs> that's not at all how any of these things work. I mean, if you look at the the projects that have been considered using gene drives, for example, yeah. um, the there are are huge amounts of research that have gone on, including uh, you know people in social sciences who are trying to actively engage community stakeholders. And nothing happens. Nothing has actually happened that hasn't had 100% buy-in of people who are impacted. Target malaria, for example, have been working in Burkina Faso on a potential gene drive solution to malaria, right? Killing yep. the mosquitoes, causing the mosquitoes to become sterile so that they can't pass on malaria. And they haven't done it because all they're doing right now is trying to engage local stakeholders and local scientists and do forecasting models and really, you know, try to understand what the international community and more importantly, the local community thinks about these yeah. technologies. And yet, if you hear about it in the news, it's just that scientists are evilly going in there and doing this stuff. But it's not true. They're yeah. not. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the CRISPR conservation movement, what have been some of the most exciting advancements in that movement for you in the, within the past couple of years? Uh, well, you know, there's still a, a long way to go. Um, yeah. We One of the biggest challenges in all of this is that... Um, we don't we still don't really understand what specific parts of genomes are doing <laughs> to cause specific phenotypes so totally. for example the the project you probably talked with Ben about that revive and restore has been working on with um uh black-footed ferrets mm -hmm. right so black-footed ferrets this adorable little predator that lives across the the prairies in North America and they eat prairie dogs. They're also called prairie dog hunters. And it's made, most of their diet is prairie dogs. And 
prairie dogs were a big problem to people who were expanding and building farms across the West in the early part of the 20th century. And so they came up with these very successful prairie dog eradication programs. And in eradicating prairie dogs, they also eradicated most black-footed ferrets. Um, black-footed ferrets were one of the original species on the endangered species list, the very first endangered species list. And they were thought to have gone extinct after um, a captive breeding program in the 70s or 80s, I think, failed. Um, and they didn't find any more black-footed ferrets. They couldn't get them to breed in captivity. And then they didn't, didn't see any anymore. And then about a decade later, a population was discovered near Matitsi, Wyoming. And scientists, again, started bringing them into the captive breeding program. At first, the population looked fine. And then it, they started looking sicker and sicker. And they realized that they didn't have much time left. And they tried to capture as many individuals as possible and bring them into captive breeding. They did eventually figure out how to get them to breed in captivity. And so they have this pretty successful captive breeding program. And every year now, hundreds of individuals are released into the prairies where they seem to do fine, except they're still dying of the same thing that was killing them before. And it's a combination of um, distemper and plague, sylvatic plague. Uh, you can vaccinate them against it, but having a conservation program where you have to repeatedly capture yeah. and vaccinate and then booster yeah. all of the individuals in that population is not sustainable. And so Revive and Restore in collaboration with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Smithsonian and the San Diego Frozen Zoo and some other groups have come up with this project to try to use genetic rescue and potentially gene editing to help save the Blackfoot and Ferret population. How would this work? Well, there's two ways. One of them just involves biotechnology, but more traditional biotechnology. I can't believe we call this bio tra yeah. traditional biotechnology now. But there are you know, decades-old frozen cell lines at the San Diego Frozen Zoo that could be used as living cellular material to clone a black-footed ferret. And in fact, last year, they did this. A, a, an individual, Elizabeth Ann, was cloned from cells that had been frozen for, I think, 40 years. And she is a perfectly healthy, normal black-footed ferret that will soon be introduced to the captive breeding population, which will raise their number of founding individuals to eight, right? Mm -hmm. Which is insane. That's a tiny number. But Elizabeth Ann's DNA is actually different from the others because she wasn't from that last right. population. She was from a, a different population that's there. So that will help because it will increase the amount of diversity in the population but it's probably not gonna stop them from getting plague. To do that, they actually have to reach a little bit deeper into the biotechnology toolkit and think about using CRISPR gene editing or some other form of gene editing. And they would do it like this. So the, the domestic ferret, which is a cousin of black-footed ferrets, evolved alongside plague and is naturally resistant. Oh. So if they could figure out what it is that makes domestic ferrets naturally resistant to plague, they could then copy that part of the domestic ferret genome and paste it into the black-footed ferret, transferring genetic material between species, closely related species. Mm -hmm. So it's a transgenic black-footed ferret and therefore creating a black-footed ferret that was capable of living alongside plague. That is right. so cool. I hadn't heard that it's last bit. It's super cool. But there's a challenge, and this is the challenge that I was sort of hinting at at the beginning of this, and, and that is that they don't know. We, we don't know. No one knows yeah, what yeah. the genetic underpinning of this lack of ability to get plague is. And so that's where you have to start. And this is kind of where we're starting with most wild species. I mean, we know a lot about human genomes because we've sequenced a lot of human genomes, and we know a lot about fruit flies 
and <laughs> and transparent worms called sea mm-hmm. elegans and maybe some mice. If they live in a in a lab and have been the subject of lots of, you know, NIH-based research yeah, for decades, yeah. we know about their genome. Anything else, you know, if we want to save rhinos or elephants or black-footed yeah. ferrets, or corals, or trees, we have to sequence their genomes, and then we have to understand the links between genotypes and phenotypes. And rarely is it there's one gene that does one thing. It's a a suite of genes that are interacting with each other in ways that we don't really understand that are going to take a long time to, to really dive into. So yes, I think there's huge potential for using gene editing for conservation, but there's a long slog of basic science research that is standing in the way of immediate application. Um, That said, that's where we got to get. And that's why investment from biotech entrepreneurs, like in this new company, are are such a win for conservation. You know, we're not going to get there without money. And we don't want to take money away from conservation programs that we know are working, even if they're, you know, not doing everything they could possibly do. We need new money, new ideas. And that's what this is. I love that so much. It's brilliant. I mean, this is one of the one of the few things that give me hope for the future. Um, so, this what are your greatest hopes and fears regarding the genomic tech revolution? All of those implications. Uh, I mean, I think there's lots of reason to be hopeful. If and, and here's my biggest fear. My fear is that we are so worried about risks and unintended consequences that we make some global decision that makes it impossible to push forward with this stuff. Um, I, I worry that our fears about gene editing and genomic technologies could get in the way of us being able to use this incredible new suite of technologies to do good, right? Um But I'm hopeful because I think we're going to be pushed into a place, and this is bad, we'll be pushed into a place where we have no choice, right? Right. But we do have these technologies, and the technologies are there to be able to help us to achieve some of these goals that we have to help protect and preserve ecosystems that are alive today. How do you think, being so thoroughly immersed in the academic world of global extinctions and, you know, the enormity of deep time may have affected your own relationships with extinction and climate change and in general, just this concept of an apocalypse, the world ending. How do you think that has influenced your outlook? (laughs) That is an interesting question. How has being involved in thinking about deep time influenced my thinking about an apocalypse? Well, that and also just like the 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 world ending mass extinctions that have occurred over time and the one that we're facing currently and how there's this, you know, the human brain is, you know, hardwired to, you know, think in this linear end sort of thing where there's like a yeah. deadline, an end. And I'm curious, like. I, I'm just curious how all, all these folks working in 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 these fields, how, what their relationship is with that during this particular time of of tremendous loss and change. I think it's it's not really the answer that you're looking for, but one of the things that has influenced me is the way that people who think about conservation and especially people who think about leaving things alone for conservation rather Mm -hmm. than manipulation are stuck in a particular time period for what they think is natural or what they think things should return to. And it's not always the same one. And, you know, people talk, talk about 
preserving or or um, rewilding or reviving a particular landscape in North America? Are they thinking about the landscape before Europeans got mm-hmm. here or before the first people were here or before the the mammoths were here? I mean, this we, we have to think of the world as constantly changing. Ecosystems aren't static. Nothing is static. And everything right now is adapting to a world with us. And a lot of things are going extinct, but also things aren't. And if we are so pushed toward bigger and more and bigger and more that we eventually drive ourselves extinct, then the world will continue, just not with us in it. You know, it's... Yeah. Uh, um, but when we think about... So I guess where I'm going with the idea about conservation is, you know, we often, when we think about what we want to preserve or what we want to save or what we want the world to look like, we have a particular world in mind and it would be more helpful um, toward achieving our goals if we could imagine that world as today, but biodiverse rather than a hundred years ago or 10,000 years ago. And maybe this is one of the reasons that the idea of de-extinction vexes me so much sometimes is why do we want mammoths back to take us back 10,000 years when the rest of the world is not 10,000 years ago? Instead, we should be concentrating on helping the species that we still have adapt to live today, to be in the world today and And the world that we're predicted to have tomorrow. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the, the idea of genetic rescue and intervention. I mean, we know where we're going and 50 years is going to be warmer than it is today. And in a hundred years, it's going to be warmer than then. And we're going to have um, higher sea levels and there's all sorts of things, different precipitation patterns, all these things that we can predict. We shouldn't be engineering everything so that it looks like it did a hundred years ago. We should be engineering things so that they have a chance to survive in whatever the future is going to be. I could not agree more. Thank you so, so, so very much for giving me this little tidbit of of your schedule. I, I cannot appreciate it. I was like grinning the entire time speaking with you just to let you know how how much of how uh, important this was for me and how much I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your mind. Well, I'm flattered. I hope I didn't say anything particularly stupid, but I probably did and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we all do. We all do. I do it like a hundred times a day, but it's going to happen. As I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode, I began this project with the intention of exploring the speculative possibilities of a Jurassic world with conversations and insights from a variety of researchers, scientists, artists, and journalists in a broad range of fields. However, as the show went on, I found myself having to pivot more and more towards the culture surrounding the Jurassic Park franchise, which is something that so many other podcasts and YouTubers and and blogs have covered extensively and continue to cover far better than I ever could. Ultimately, I decided, as Dr. Shapiro suggested in this interview, that I lean more into the speculative science fiction angle as I did with the first two episodes of this show. In doing so, I'd be less reliant on securing interview time with guests and better positioned to illustrate and dramatize the possibilities of a neo-Jurassic world as I saw them. Well, I have, and although I can't say any more in the matter, I am very excited for you all to see what will be coming your way very soon. Before I leave you, I'd really, really, really like to thank all of you for your support and enthusiasm with this project. Uh, From the truly lovely, lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts to your Patreon support, I can't thank you enough. 
It can be a strange experience investing so much into a project and launching it into the endless, noisy expanse of the internet. And, and your support truly, truly, truly has meant so much to me. So thank you, thank you, and thank you.